We collaborated with um, CDC's Center for Preparedness and Response, which is now referred to as the Office of Readiness and Response, on a strategic communications um, project last year or maybe a year before last. Yeah, no, it was last year. Was last year, okay. Um, and we developed out some discussion guides for planners or anyone who's looking to um, do some preparedness for their organization, specifically around the social determinants of health, which is obviously very important for, um, you know, the, the public health field and has a lot of different implications that go beyond preparedness. You're listening to Further Together, the ORAU podcast. Join Michael Holtz and his guests for conversations about all things ORAU. They'll talk about ORAU's storied history, our impact on an ever-changing world, our innovative scientific and technical solutions for our customers, and our commitment to the communities where we do business. Welcome to Further Together, the ORAU podcast. Welcome to Further Together, the ORU podcast. As ever, I'm your host, Michael Holtz, in the Communications and Marketing Department at ORU. And my co-host, Amber Davis, is back with me. Amber, welcome back. Thank you. How's it going today? Oh, you know, it's uh, while we're recording, it's Friday, so I'm happy about that. (laughs) (laughs) Always happy on a Friday. So, yeah, it is Friday. It is mid-August as we are having this conversation, but we are preparing for September, which is National Preparedness Month. And it's very important um, to ORU because we do a lot of work in the preparedness space that we don't always talk about. So, today, we're going to do that. Um, and to join us for that conversation, we have Jennifer Burnett and Will Artley. Jennifer and Will, welcome to Further Together. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So, um, Jennifer, if you would first introduce yourself and tell us what you do here at ORE. Sure. I'm Jennifer Burnett. I'm a project manager in our public health and healthcare uh, program, specifically under the preparedness section. So I work on a lot of different preparedness and response contracts for the federal government, um, such as a radiation studies uh, contract that we have. And I also lead uh, our uh, community of practice around preparedness, where we really deep dive into different preparedness issues and look at um, trends and things that are going on in the field and what we want to keep up with. Awesome. And Will. Hi. I work, have worked for ORU for 31 years now, uh, 25 or 26 of those have been out of my house, so I moved around the country quite a bit. I am primarily a technical writer, technical editor for PHH, but I'm also doing work for PTP on uh, NRC work and also our NIOSH work, so okay. kind of spread around. Awesome. Well, welcome to both of you. Um, and. Again, as I said at the outset, we're talking about preparedness month. Um, Jennifer, I want to start with you just from a global perspective, um, from the kind of 30,000 foot view. Why is preparedness month important? Um, I think so. I would say preparedness is important all the time. All the time. <laughs> That's one of my passions, right? Uh, but the reason we have preparedness month, just like um, all the other awareness months, is specifically to bring awareness to the 
not only general public, but also in our case, business sector and other organizations that really need to be thinking about preparedness, um, not only during September, but also throughout the you know entire year and uh, all the different implications that that may have for their business or their organization or the populations that they serve. Uh, so this is really an exciting time for us to to um, talk about preparedness in a lot of, from a lot of different angles and um, get folks thinking beyond hey go put some stuff in a backpack and have it in your car you know so there, there's so much more to it so um, that's one of the reasons I love preparedness month is kind of being able to dig into a lot of different elements and make everyone more aware. Absolutely. Um- one of the aspects I know for this year's Preparedness Month Observance is kind of focusing on older populations. And I know we want to sort of get there, um, but part of the work that you all have done um, is the development of some discussion guides. Um, and I know we'll kind of talk about those in and out of the conversation, but wanted to just talk about what what are the discussion guides, um, you know, what do they help people do, organizations, et cetera, um, do to be ready for instances where, um, you know, they may need to, you know, bug out because of disaster or, you know, prepare for, for an exposure or whatever it may be that we're preparing for. Will, do you want to take that one? Will was pretty integral in, in that work. Oh, I was going to defer to you. You're, you're more versed in it than I. I just wrote it. <laughs> Will just wrote most of it. <laughs> just wrote. Um, okay, I can I can jump us off. So so yeah, we collaborated with um, CDC's um, Center for Preparedness and Response, which is now referred to as the Office of Readiness and Response on a strategic communications um, project last year or maybe a year before last year? No, no, it was last year. Last year, okay. Um, And we developed out some discussion guides for planners or anyone who's looking to um, do some preparedness for their organization, specifically around the social determinants of health, which is obviously very important for, um, you know, the, the public health field and has a lot of different implications that, go beyond preparedness and if you're not familiar with social determinants of health and i want to make sure i say these correctly so i'm going to look at my screen um (laughs) they include five key areas economic stability education access and quality healthcare access and quality neighborhood and built environment and social and community context so we did discussion guides in collaboration with cdc on all five of those key areas and really brought in a preparedness lens which is actually something that we through lit searches and, and uh, different environmental scans, there wasn't a lot of info that linked those things, at least not directly and very um, succinctly in something like a discussion guide that you could get through with your partners in an hour or a couple of hours. Okay. Uh, so that, that was a pretty great project and CDC's um, featuring that on their National Preparedness Month stuff for September. So. We were excited to be part of that collaboration. Anything yeah. else you want to add, Will? Yeah, just to add to that, we also, you know, like I said, discussion guides is like a group of people getting together just like we are having a casual discussion, but we give them prompting questions to think about and okay. work as a team to, to solve a problem. We also included what's called promising practices in each discussion guide. For example, one of them was after Katrina, New Orleans, 
you know, had a hard time with evacuation and they created what's called city assisted evacuation. So they have 17 what's called evacue spots in New Orleans that will take people to the Smoothie King Center, which is where the pro basketball team plays. There they'll be registered and then they will be taken by train, uh, bus or airplane to a federal facility or somewhere to shelter. So, you know, it's things that people have learned, lessons learned that can be applied to other communities. Yeah, and that, and that actually gets at some of the theme for um, September for this preparedness month around older adults and, um, you know, that kind of uh, equity piece, those evacuation spots were strategically placed to help folks who maybe don't own a car or would be dependent on public transportation that might have been wiped out during the emergency. So that kind of ties some of that in because we've seen that um, disproportionately older adults, you know, are using more public transportation, driving less, have less um, means of, of transportation. Right. So that becomes a really important piece for, you know, how do you get out if you need to, if you need to do so, right? Um, yeah, right. I, if I can jump in, I was going to ask, um, you know, we're talking about evacuations and we're seeing, you know, evacuations now in Hawaii. And, you know, there's so much to consider when you talk about preparedness. You have urban populations, you have rural populations. You know, what does the planning look like when you're trying to consider all the different dynamics? <laughs> Good question. <laughs> That's a tough question. Uh, it's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. I mean, let's back up a little bit because when you're doing preparedness in a community, you do what's called a hazard vulnerability analysis, which is you look at, okay, what, what, what's going to happen here? I live in Savannah, Georgia, so we have two, two things, severe thunderstorms and hurricanes. So I don't need to prepare for a snowstorm. I just need to prepare for two things. And so uh, the Chatham County Emergency Management Agency is already, you know, they have zones that they set up. Okay, this zone's going to evacuate first, and this one, this one, and it keeps moving further away from the coast. And, but for me, you know, I need to plan on my own. Okay, it's coming. Where am I going to go? And how long am I going to stay there? If it's a Category 1 hurricane, it's no big deal. <laughs> category 5 hurricane, I might not have a house. Get so, out. <laughs> uh, you know, I might be months away from my home. So it's, it's, it's kind of both community planning and personal planning work together. Okay. Jennifer? Yeah, I'll, I'll add on to that. You mentioned urban versus rural, and we have worked with organ, um, with communities that are both urban and rural. For instance, we did some workshops in um, Fort Bend, Montana, which had about a thousand people um, in the county and worked with them on their unique uh, challenges with having less resources, very spread out across a, a large you know, land mass. Um, on the flip side, because of some of these factors, very resilient populations because they have had to learn to deal with major snowstorms, for instance, as one of their hazards. Um, so really some unique challenges, particularly with rural communities because of some of the just blanket, less resources, less personnel, less people. Um, on the flip side, maybe they have less people to move, mm -hmm. but then you start getting into potentially 
um, agricultural preparedness or, um, you know, where you're looking to um, save the food supply on top of, you know, the people. And, and there are folks who, you know, for instance, in Oregon, we had um, cattle ranches and family farms and things like that. People would not, there would be a wildfire a mile away. If you didn't have a place for their animals, they were not leaving. So, you know, and a lot of that I think was learned bef well before Katrina, but in Katrina is, you know, Hurricane Katrina is one that gets brought up a lot because people wouldn't leave their pets. For instance, I, I have two dogs sitting right underneath me. I wouldn't leave my pets. <laughs> right. um, but the, the concept of like the livestock animals and things like that maybe has been less talked about in a, in a broader kind of um, preparedness since although the people who deal with this every day are thinking about that they sure. they have to figure out how to get those animals to a safe place because it's their livelihood right. and that's one of the ones you know bringing it back to the social determinants of health the economic stability piece people are going to make preparedness or and response decisions in an in an emergency based on those factors so you may say, well, money shouldn't matter in this case, but it does, mm -hmm. you know, so keeping those kinds of things in mind and seeing it from like more of a whole community, which is whole community is a very, um, you know, a term that FEMA uses a lot, but we see it across a lot of other federal agencies as well. Um, but it's, it's whole person also. So there's so <laughs> much to take into account um, when you're talking about either community preparedness or personal preparedness and, um, so yeah, um, right. I could like this forever. So. <laughs> well, and then Jennifer, you know, as as we're having this conversation, the Hawaii wildfires are you know kind of top of mind for everyone. And, you know, that's a situation where you know it's not like Savannah where you can move far inland, right? You're limited by the landmass to where you can get to. So that sort of planning, and I, I know we weren't involved in that, but. Uh, you know, involves other aspects of, you know, how do you get people out of there and, um, you know, moved appropriately and off the island if you can do it, so. Yeah, and I mean, that's one of those that, as you've seen, a very tough situation that's unfolded there and how quickly the, the fire spread mm -hmm. to the different areas of the island. And like you said, there's only so many places to go. I know that those, you know, emergency management groups have done a lot of preparedness, very specific to island planning. Um, similar with Alaska, Hawaii and Alaska, because of how unique their challenges are, um, have additional federal support a lot of times and folks that are really dedicated to their, um, their situation and what they're trying to plan around. And so they, they're, you know, trying to give them additional resources where maybe they're, they have um, limitations but ultimately, <laughs> we can plan as much as we can. Mm -hmm. And there's, there's always something you're not going to think of or something that's going to go wrong that you didn't expect to go wrong. So, you know, even with if we're talking island preparedness or, or like Alaska is a really good example because of their remoteness. Um, there's just certain challenges that no matter what, you're not going to have the best outcome because of all the factors that are going to come into that. So, you know, the folks who commit themselves to, to being local planners, um, especially in, in those circumstances, you, you got to give them props for 
even the level that they they get to to be able to to you know for instance i'm sure you all have heard of the iditarod (laughs) yeah where they um yeah take the the sled dogs from um one part of alaska into like the most remote part to deliver they still do that and they use it as preparedness tool not only because it's a tradition, but also because it's a preparedness tool. And they, they know that they potentially, and they have, if, I, if I'm not mistaken, we, when I worked in Oregon, we worked with Alaska a little bit and did some training up there. So it was really interesting to talk to them. Um, they, they use it as a preparedness exercise to be able to get medication, you know, to these remote areas mm. uh, to get, you know, for instance, power goes out, there's no refrigeration, we just do vaccines. They've like built these ice block things to store the vaccines in, you know, just a lot of creativity that goes into some of these things sometimes. Shoto um, County works with Montana. Uh, they used uh, refrigeration trucks you know, had that kind of stuff in their plans. So go ahead. I was, I was going to ask, is there a good collaboration? Because I'm thinking closer to home, closer to ORAU, we had some wildfires here, you know, in the mm-hmm. National Park up in Gatlinburg. And I remember, right. you know, we learned so much through that situation because, you know, it's not, I wouldn't say rule, but we had different infrastructure. Like we had two lane roads that were tight and there were wildfires on both sides of the highway, you know, and so people were having trouble getting out. And I'm sure that, you know, these are lessons that everyone can be like, hmm, okay, we need to consider this and that. Is there good collaboration every time there's, you know, an emergency that teams, you know, on another side of the country are, are gleaning from it? How, how does that work? I can answer that. Uh, preparedness is part of the continuous improvement cycle. So you develop a plan, you train people to plan, you exercise the plan, and then you look at what you did wrong and improve the plan. So after exercises, even after actual events, the planners are going to write an after-action report. The details, okay, here's where we failed, here's how we can improve it. And so those reports are available to everybody. Mm. It'll be on the news too. Here's what we need to do next time to do it right. So, you know, you're always going to make mistakes, but you learn from them, then you improve. So that's just part of the process. Sure. Well, and Will, you, you bring up sort of a, a, a next, if you will, topic of discussion, which is the exercises. And I know your teams are expert at um, the exercise process. I mean, we have, um, you know, VHA pins and we have exercise builder nuclear and, um, you know, other virtual tools that we use to help planners, you know, basically have exercises that simulate um, situations that, you know, need response. Um, Talk a little bit about that and, and the importance of, that process. And I, I worked in a hospital, so we did, you know, tabletop exercises, you know, on the regular and, and, you know, once a year or so would actually do, you know, have actors come in as patients from a, you know, from a staged accident sort of thing. And so we would go through that process as well of, you know, how do you triage and what do you do and what, you know, so that you learn what, what are we missing? you know, or who's not at the table, you know, those sorts of things. So talk about the 
the value and the importance of exercises and some of the tools that we've created. Well, like I said before, purpose of an exercise is to make sure that you're prepared. In a nutshell, that's what it is. But, right. Um, so when somebody wants to do an exercise, obviously they get, okay, what are you exercising? I mean, what's what's the scenario? I mean, and a lot of people say, well, we don't have a plan. I said, well, how do you have an exercise if you don't have a plan? <laughs> uh, for, for example, back in the 2000s, we did like 35 tabletop exercises with CDC's quarantine stations. Okay. So they were very specific. We, we want to know what we're supposed to do if an ill traveler comes in on an international conveyance. And so, you know, we designed tabletop exercises to address that issue. Uh, I can't address exercise builder or PIMS because I don't know that much about them. But I can say that we are working with Freddie Gray's group on developing a virtual exercise capability. Uh, we tested it once using six connects and Teams, and we're doing one next week with six connects and Zoom, which we tested this morning. It works much better. So we are definitely looking at developing a virtual exercise capability. That's exciting, and it's important, you know. For Jennifer, anything to add? Yeah, um, I'll just mention, you know, with, with PIMS, um, which is a, a program that's been built specifically for the, the VHA or the Veterans Health Administration, our colleague Mary Connolly um, heads up that group. You know, they've built that through kind of the process that Will's already talked about with the continuous improvement. So as new things come up, um, and I should I should back up. So you mentioned the hospital exercises. A lot of these things are federally mandated, right? right? So these programs get funding, and they have to meet certain requirements. They have to exercise certain things, you know. So um, BHA is in a similar situation. They have joint commission requirements. They have uh, requirements from other agencies as well. A lot of that stuff is difficult to track and capture in a way that's useful, right? That, that's not just kind of living on multiple spreadsheets or in different after action reports. Uh, so that's one of the, to me, the strengths of PIMS is bringing all of those things together for the VHA to say, okay, here's the big picture across all of our hospitals and here's where we're seeing them struggle in certain exercises or not meet a certain capability. And then they can go and figure out, okay, what can we do as an agency to, to help all of the hospitals with this particular capability or something like that. So they've really utilized the continuous improvement process to one, improve PIMS, but in the process improve, you know, BHA's ability to respond um, in whatever sort of, you know, emergency or, or circumstance that comes up. So I did want to mention that. And an exercise builder nuclear is similar in that it tracks some pretty strict uh, regulations from the nuclear commission that it again is difficult to roll up over an eight year, I think it's an eight year period um, where they want to make, they're not just checking a box. They're really serious when they go in and exercise these things, you know? So um, that's, I thought I'd mention that because I at least know that much. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, that's great. And, I, you know, again, I think that's it's an important part of the work that we do in terms of helping other, you know, agencies facilitate their, you know, kind of the mandated exercises that, you know, have to be done. Hospitals have to do it. Public health has to do it, you know, um, to 
It can be one of the more fun aspects of preparedness. Yeah. I think a lot of people who aren't in this field maybe think, oh, this is pretty doom and gloom. All you just think about the next anthrax <laughs> attack or, <laughs> you know, the next COVID or whatever it yeah. is. And, and we are thinking about those things and we have to. But um, so, you know, exercises can be a really nice way to really see something come to fruition that you worked hard on, like these plans and building partnerships with community, you know, community members and things like that. Um, and getting back to the community preparedness, I did want to mention, you know, that's one of the key things. You can exercise a plan, you can think that you're ready, but if you haven't maintained partnerships, if you haven't maintained that community connection, it's all going to fall apart, right? It, it's not going to go the way you think it's going to go based on what happened in the exercise because those partners come to the exercise and if they don't stay engaged, they've forgotten, you know, they're not thinking about their role anymore and preparing for their role. Um, so making that connection and keeping those connections is a really big part of what emergency planners locally and at the state level, that's a huge part of their, their job and what they have to, you know, focus in on. Um, so that's part of what we do is try to help because we do federal agency contracts most of the time is make that connection for the feds back down to the state and locals to maintain those partnerships also. Right. So, and, and being able to bring back what the locals are saying their experiences are and having that translate into federal guidance that makes sense. That's going to be useful and actually makes sense. You know, when a local partner goes to the, you know, FEMA website and, pull something down. So um, we're kind of like, a. I feel like a lot of times we're a connector point. Would you, wouldn't you say, Will, like we're, we're trying to make that connection for everyone. Definitely, um, definitely. I, I saw that particularly with the Champaign-Urbana, Illinois community. And that's where the University of Illinois is. We worked with them a number of times and they've even told us that, you know, your work with us has made us very well prepared and everybody knows each other. Right. And so it's like a big family. And, uh, and really like, careful when you talk about the partners, I mean, you're talking certainly about hospitals and public health and, you know, police, yeah, fire, yeah, yeah. You know, hospitals, EMS, fire, police, yeah. uh, mortuary services, and the county mayor was involved. I mean, <laughs> everybody, like Jennifer Every, said, the whole community. Yeah, yeah. The whole community. Yeah. And, and there's a flip side to that, too. You as a planner, you're making these connections because you you need to make them for your own preparedness and to meet the goals that your you know preparedness and response program has, and you want to prepare the community. But you also are in this unique situation where you've brought all these partners together who also might need to know each other for other reasons. So there's a really, and I think this is a missed opportunity a lot of times, and to me this would strengthen those connections of turning it around to your partners and saying like, thank you for supporting this preparedness effort and being part of this exercise. What can I do to help you build your partnerships? Mm -hmm. I've got all of these partners that we've already done all this work to bring together. And you can just like strengthen those ties you, know, you just tighten up all of those ties within the community because now these two organizations are working together and these two are working together. Um, so that's one that I think we miss a lot of times because that's a, that's extra work. That's that's more, you know, but it also keeps them engaged because now you're reciprocating that connection and that partnership. And they're finding other ways to work together that aren't 
not only exercises, but aren't those emergent crisis situations necessarily. And then when it is an emergent crisis situation, they also know each other. They don't just know you. Right. They know each other too. So They know, they know who to call. So everybody, everybody benefits at the end of the day. Yeah. Something I wanted to point out too about community preparedness is maintaining your knowledge base. Because mm-hmm. we, we ran in that in Montana where I can't remember her name. But the emergency manager, she'd been emergency manager in Choteau County for like 40 years, and she was retiring, and there was mm-hmm. nobody with her experience and knowledge to take her place. So uh-huh. a lot of these rural frontier communities, you know, you need to think about that. I need to train somebody to take my job because when I, when I leave, nobody's going to be, be able to fill my shoes. I'm taking that all that institutional knowledge with me. Yeah, yeah and you're not prepared. Yeah. Yeah. And that mass exodus you saw during COVID or right after COVID where the burnout was just to a level that people, folks who maybe would have stayed on another 10 years are like, forget it, we're retiring. Or you might have some new people who are like, this is not what I thought I was getting into. I'm going to a different career. Um, so we're seeing that all over the country. And you kind of see that in, in some of the federal agencies' approaches in the last couple of years too, like with our annual preparedness summit um, that NATO puts on and things like that, seeing kind of a re um, refocus on newer people to the field and, and trying to get them up to speed as quickly as, as possible um, because we've seen so much of that, that turnover. So that is some, a big critical part of the, the field. Um, one of I know one of the issues we've sort of talked about um, on the side is you know the role of climate change. You know we're we're seeing um, a lot of extreme weather, which means you know lots of different things are happening, um, from wildfires <laughs> to floods to you know just even extreme heat. You know you've got communities that are having to open cooling shelters. Um, I guess my question, you know, is it feels like there's there's getting to be a lot more to prepare for. <laughs> uh, you know, are the are the basics? Everyone's just more aware. Uh, maybe so. <laughs> I suppose, right? Because the preparedness folks are prepared, right? Um, but it, you know, are, are the basics generally the same? Um, you know, depending on the circumstances or. You know, do they legitimately change depending on, I mean, uh, the specifics of the scenario seems obvious, but, you I know. I think it's a, just another hazard to consider. Okay. Just while you're okay. talking, I'm sitting here thinking, okay, you know, firefighters train to fight fires. Hmm. I mean, they wear all that heavy clothes, but all of a sudden right. if they're fighting fires and it's 110 degrees outside, well, you've got to change something there because the human body can't take that. Right. So it's just another another thing to consider, and I, you know, it's it's definitely evolving process. You know, how do you? Yeah. How does preparedness and climate change? How do they merge together? Right. It's interesting you bring up that point because I feel like there's actually a lot of struggle about how to approach preparedness a lot of times, and it's specifically with that in mind. So for a while you know, there'd be a lot of mandates about something very specific like pandemic influenza or anthrax or a very particular hazard that we know might take another level of preparedness that's very specific to that hazard. 
And then in other realms, it's we should have an all hazards approach. No matter what the hazard is, we should have these certain capabilities that we need to meet, which we do. The federal agencies, both CDC, ASPR, FEMA, they've all defined very specific capabilities that you should be able to meet for whatever hazard is going on. But it's so hard to plan only for all hazards because you know you're going to miss something that's very specific <laughs> to a hazard, right? right. So um, that's kind of a eternal debate a little bit, what you brought up, because it's both. It's you got to train to capabilities and you, you can't just pretend there's not specific ones out there that maybe have some unique Sure, circumstances going back to wills you know all hazards you know is all well and good until you have to pivot and not use that particular <laughs> ppe because it's right, too right. Or yeah or yeah. something you've not experienced before maybe but. right from what yeah. from what i've read is you know the statistics actually are looking good as far as we are more prepared we are doing better with you know saving lives um you know and as far as you know like these extreme temperatures or whatever. It's like, I think more people actually are dying from cold. And if that's, you know, another thing, I know we've talked about um, one of the focuses of this repair just with this, like the, the aging population. So is that something, you know, that maybe, and it's probably on both ends that that extreme is the heat and cold for the elderly, you know, we need to keep an eye out, but is there anything as far as, is that specifically, I know you mentioned, Figuring out how to get medication, you know, during emergencies, I think that's very important for that population. But um, and you mentioned pets, and I, you know, I think that's also probably really important um, for every population. But really, people who have become very attached to, um, you know, some pets. But anyway, thinking about the the elderly, is there something that you know we should hit on and make sure people know that you know good work's being done to prepare for those those circumstances? Well, you know, the elderly. <laughs> come with their own issues, you know, mobility issues, hearing issues, sight issues, uh, just frailty. Mm -hmm. And so you got to consider all those things when you're planning. And to give you an example, when Hurricane Floyd was approaching Savannah, I think it was back in 1999 or 2000, they ordered a mandatory evacuation. And I lived in Memphis at the time, and I saw the commercial appeals of front page picture was Interstate 16 in Savannah and all four lanes were bumper to bumper going out of town. Well, my dad was elderly and he was suffering from Alzheimer's. Mm. And so they had to evacuate him from a nursing home mm. and he thought he was being kidnapped. And oh, wow. really, yeah. it really affected his health. And they, they had to go all the way to Athens, Georgia to find a hotel to stay in. And so he was fighting the whole way. So... You know, those are the kind of things you need to think about. You know, when you just grab somebody and say, let's go, well, <laughs> they might not be in the frame of mind as say, okay, I'm coming. So you got to think of things like that. Mm. Gosh. Yeah. And I mean, planner, you know, folks who are in this field and doing this work every day, they are thinking about those types of populations and trying to plan for those circumstances. You're never going to catch everything. And that's where, going back to the community partnerships, that's where a lot of that comes in is, is working with those groups that maybe have like long-term care facilities. For instance, when I was in Oregon, we, we were um, responding to the Chetco bar fire, which is one of the um, biggest ones in history. One of the biggest wildfires in history um, in Oregon, at least um, they 
you know, did a lot of work before we got there because I worked at the state at the local level to work with long-term care facilities to be, have them ready to be able to evacuate because they recognized how difficult that was going to be if there was a circumstance where all of their residents needed to be moved. You know, so even just the base of, basis of or basics of of making those partnerships ahead of time instead of calling in the you know in the middle of the wildfire and saying we well, have to move all your residents and and you know to the point that like they had gotten um, patient counts what their diagnoses were what the mobility issues might be for the different populations what kind of transportation they would need I mean it was very extensive what they had done to prepare to move uh, those folks out of those facilities so that's another example of just you know the type of work that that's being done to to think about those populations and make sure that that we're prepared um so everyone there's always going to be something that falls <laughs> <laughs> the cracks and right. it's like especially with the news and how things are are conveyed you know they're always going to be able to find something that wasn't quite right or or you made a decision you thought was the right one in in the moment and then you see um that it didn't go the way that you thought it was going to go so you know the the folks who work in this field especially at the local level and they're making these decisions on the fly like it takes a lot of heart to stay in this kind of yeah. field and um continue to stay dedicated to your community especially when you know you know that your decisions actually really affect people's lives so um and it's easy That's to think about preparedness much. We want to recognize those people. <laughs> and it's, you know, it's easy to armchair quarterback, you know, after a decision has been made to be critical yeah. of a, a decision that someone made when, That's why they you say know, I'm not the person. Yeah. I'm not the person to make the call. Hindsight is 2020. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, I'm not the person who had to make the call and, you know, evacuating people during a flood or a fire or whatever, you know, someone else had to do that and, you know, yeah, not not everything goes to plan always, but, you know, I didn't have to make the call, but it's easy to criticize. So. Right. Well, and getting back to your mention of the medication during an emergency. Yeah. So there is quite a bit. There's a couple of campaigns out there specifically um, focused on older adults or folks who maybe have a lot of medications, um, not only to encourage them where they can to get additional medication kind of stockpiled if they need it, but also legislation and like specific authorities around that, that they're trying to change to allow people to get the medication for an emergency supply. Um, so it's kind of both sides there. A lot of times it's like, this is a great idea and it'd be great to ask people to do this, but the law prevents it, right? Like you can go to the pharmacy and get six months worth of your medication. Right. Yeah. They're not going to give it to you, you know. <laughs> you have so, to think about uh, opioid, opioid abuse and other things, you know, people raiding oh, medicine yeah. cabinets of their grandparents. So it's like, I don't know if that is a good idea. Yeah, that's tough. <laughs> right, and you, you can't make those decisions yeah. in a vacuum, right? It's like, well, I'm only thinking about preparedness, so it should be this way. Well, no, <laughs> getting back to the whole community, whole, whole preparedness, you have to think about everything, like all the different aspects that are going to come into play there and, is there going to be more harm by putting mm -hmm. this in place, like rating medicine cabinets or having too many, yeah, yeah medication, you know, opioid medications and things like that? Um, so, you know, we see a lot of that kind of balance 
too from the federal level of like okay what we want people to do xyz but the law is going to prevent it or the way the system set up is going to prevent it so one what's the workaround right now because you know how long it takes to change a law <laughs> you know um what's the workaround now and then also what can we do kind of to advocate for a certain setup or maybe emergency power or something like that that will allow um, those things when it's needed, you know, so it's complex. (laughs) (laughs) Great example to prove it. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we've talked globally about how communities prepare. From an individual perspective, what can we do to to be prepared for the eventuality of any type of disaster? Well, like say, do your own personal hazard vulnerability analysis and, and figure out, okay, what what are the things I'm going to encounter where I live and then plan for that and go to ready.gov. FEMA has a whole section devoted to, you know, developing your personal plan and things to consider what you should take with you if it's depending on how many days you think you'll be gone. So, I mean, everything is, you know, right there for you to look at. One thing I did want to point out with personal preparedness also comes personal responsibility. And what I mean by that is every June, the Chatham County Emergency Management Agency, I live in Chatham County in Georgia, they do a a host uh, an event here where I live to talk about hurricane preparedness. And one thing they do stress is that if a mandatory evacuation is ordered and you fail to evacuate, if you were killed directly by the storm, your life insurance might not pay. So uh-huh. Take that you know, personal responsibility into account when you're deciding if you're going to leave or stay because there are consequences. Mm. Right. Jennifer? That makes sense. Yeah, I mean, ready.gov's got a lot of good resources. There's some on CDC's website as well. Um, some other things to consider, too, is just if you've got family members having a particular spot picked out that you would all meet if something happened um, and having a few, right? Like if it's a weekday and you're at school and I'm at the house and you're out doing whatever, you know, for your job, this is the place. If it's a weekend, this is the place because we're all, you know, more likely closer here. Or, or I've heard some people maybe like at their town, if, if they know they kind of stay within a certain area, then they, they, and they have very common areas of town that they're going to be in that they kind of break it out. Like if, if you're in this area of town, we're going to go here. Or if we're in this area of town, we're going to go to grandma's, you know what I mean? So having something like that in place, um, cause a lot of times, you know, that that's one of those things that like kids don't know where to go. Right. Or, or, you know, maybe, they think they should be, well, I need to leave school and try to find my parents. And in reality, what would maybe would have been better is stay at school and I'll find you or, you know, that kind of thing. Um, I tell my husband, I'll like randomly give my husband preparedness things that I've thought of. I'm like, if this happens, <laughs> this happens, this is what we're going to do. Remember this, you know? <laughs> and we laugh, but that's probably so good. <laughs> well, and, and like maintaining go bags, that's hard to do if you're not really focused on it. I mean, I'm even guilty of not. I had them really well 
in Oregon because of the potential for Cascadia, the um, the split, if the earthquake split where like gotcha. California is like out in the sea and there's tsunamis. <laughs> it's like the big, one of the, they call it the big one because it's like every hazard possible in one scenario. Right. Um, you know, I've maintained them really well there and have slacked off. So like even someone in, in, in our position where we think about preparedness, like, so at the same time, give yourself a little grace and what, what you can manage, do that and then just build up from there. Cause I think when you start looking at some of those resources like ready.gov, it can feel very over, overwhelming and maybe financially difficult because sure. it will, you know, suggest that you buy a lot of things to prepare. Um, so trying to balance that to, you know, what you can realistically do and maybe what's going to make the most impact, like making a plan with your family on where to go doesn't cost anything. So, you know, do those things that you can maybe make copies of certain documents and have them in a few places that w shouldn't, you know, won't be super costly. Um, so, you know, I think a lot of times with the personal preparedness, especially, it, it gets maybe too far in the other direction where it's like, okay, if I'm really going to be prepared, I have to have a bomb shelter in my backyard. And like, that's not financially right, realistic. Right. <laughs> you know, six so, months worth of food. And yeah. Yeah. Right. Six months worth of canned food. And how am I going to maintain <laughs> this water that's going to expire? And, you know, it can get right. really overwhelming where you're like, forget it. Like I'm not right. going to do this. So just picking those things that are really simple and going to have a big impact. Um, and, and starting there, you know, and then if yeah. you, you know, build up slowly, because I understand a disaster could happen right this second while we're on the call, <laughs> but you can only do so yeah, much. So. <laughs> <laughs> and it brings, up a, brings up a good point because during a disaster, you don't think clearly. So mm. if, if you're planned ahead of time, you really don't mm -hmm. have to think. You just know yeah. what you're going to do. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Jennifer and Will, is there anything that we haven't talked about that you want to make sure that we cover before we wrap things up? I guess the only, uh, the only thing I would say is if you are, you know, an emergency planner at the local or state level um, and happen to be listening to this or know someone who, you know, does this type of planning or you work for a community organization that needs to, you know, be doing this type of um, preparedness planning, like not to toot our own horn or anything, but those discussion guides on, you know, CDC's website and Michael, I don't know if you can link to those like through the podcast or not, but um, they really, I think came out well and were very approachable and brought up a lot of things that I don't think even we had thought of as we were going through and working with CDC to create them around um, preparedness and response. So I would, you know, just mention that as a really good, resource to to check out absolutely i can add the link to the um, episode description so look for that awesome. um, with this episode so well since we've been talking about kind of a a bit of a downer issue on this episode <laughs> as important as it is i want to ask everybody before we go what brings you joy jennifer burnett what brings you joy oh my gosh um these two puppy dogs all the things you <laughs> All the things you see on this board here, traveling, outdoors, mountains, and then my family. I have a three-year-old daughter named Emerson, and she is a joy and a terror all of all the <laughs> 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 up into one. <laughs> uh, but she 
she brings a level of joy that I never thought was possible. So, yeah. Awesome. Will? Uh, obviously family, but believe it or not, cooking. I'm a home chef, so I love to cook. So I'll keep that in mind next time I'm in Savannah. I was going to say, making a note. Say Arby's for dinner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Amber Davis, what brings you joy? <laughs> oh, Jesus. <laughs> I need my Jesus. And talking about this stuff just reminds me of that and how good he is. <laughs> uh, but yeah, my, my faith and, you know, um, it, it's gotten me through a whole lot of stuff. And, you know, knowing that bad stuff's going to happen. I've got the Lord. <laughs> so that's, that's my answer. But Michael, you need to answer too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I think for sure. Um, yeah, faith is important. And um, family and friends, you know, lots of joy and being surrounded by people that I love and who love me. So there you go. And cheesecake. And cheesecake. <laughs> 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 I like that. <laughs> Naturally, I love it. Naturally, yeah. All right, well, Jennifer Burnett and Will Artley, thank you so much for thank spending you. this time with us. And Amber, thanks for coming back as co-host. Thank you so you much. Do it again, for sure. <laughs> thanks All for having right. us. Thanks, everyone, and have a great day. Thank you for listening to Further Together, the ORAU podcast. To learn more about any of the topics discussed by our experts, visit www.orau.org. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn at ORAU and on Instagram at ORAU Together. If you like Further Together, the ORAU podcast, we would appreciate you giving us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Your reviews will help more people find the podcast.